When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Hal Blaine. And when I'm not behind my beautiful set of drums, I'm listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. You should too. DIY and Hal Studios presents... Hollywood, California. Art of Rock with Caution Friends. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Rock archaeologists, you're tuned to the Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. I am the aforementioned Kosh, and I'm behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. You know my work. I have designed somewhere around 2,000 rock and roll album covers in the past 40-odd years, or so I am told. Consequently, I have made many friends in the field, rock artists, photographers, producers and engineers, and you will get to hear their stories on my show. So everyone has been telling their friends, and we very much appreciate it. Please continue. Also, if you're so inclined, consider reviewing our podcast on iTunes or wherever you currently listen. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, come and get it. They can be found at rockandrollarchaeology.com and you can support us via Patreon or get some cool Rock and Roll Archaeology swag. Shirts, caps and stickers and coffee mugs. Yes, folks, we have all the swag. Stop by and check it out. Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you.
Today, I am enchanted to be sitting with Lenise Bent, a true legend at the recording studio console, one of only a few female engineers who began in the 70s, a pioneer who is still breaking glass ceilings in the music industry today. She helped engineer milestone albums for bands such as Asia for Steely Dan, Tusk for Fleetwood Mac, Breakfast in America for Supertramp, and Auto American for Blondie, just to name a few icons that she has worked with. After cutting her teeth in the music scene, she went off and pursued a career in the film business, working on soundtracks, sound design, and very interestingly, foreign language audio post-production, what is called M&Es in the biz with Disney and DreamWorks. Today, she does it all, movies and music. So here... At Aftermaster Studios, in the heart of Tinseltown, is the amazing, funny and loquacious Lenise Bent. This is Kasha and I have a very, very special guest, a rare person, a female recording engineer. She is intoxicating. Lenise, welcome. Thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> oh, no. But you go by Kaj. I do, yes. Okay. Yes, but Johnny's so and so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> No, gosh, it is. It's a professional name. It's, a sort of, it's an affectation that I've been using for a long, long, long time. So listen, darling, I would, what I really want to start with is how did you start loving music? Um, Rumour has it you bought a, 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 your first album at 11 and you came from a musical family and you were in Compton. Yes, all those things. Are, all those things. So you, can you sort of start where, you know, start with the, the love for the blues or however got you going and stirred the soul. Well, um, what got me going is uh, my family is a musical family. Um, not professionally, just love of music. And um, I had an uncle named Willie Wilson. Now, Wilson, the last name. Um, my mother is Betty June Wilson, and her cousin was Murray Wilson, the oh. father of the Beach Boys. Yes, yes, yes. From Hutchinson, Kansas. So um, they're my cousins. They're like second or third cousins. Not, I don't know them well enough to, you know, if we don't spend Christmas together or anything. But uh, um, I knew Dennis and I knew um, Carl, and I have met Brian and actually worked with him one time. Oh, yes, you have to tell me about that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, my Uncle Willie was a blues roots musician, and um he would come and visit when he was in the Air Force when we lived in Compton, visit my mom. And um, he taught me how to harmonize when I was three. And he would play all of this great Piedmont blues, um, traditional Tried. music on yeah. um, his 
Martin guitar and his banjo and all of that back at, back in the 50s. And um, it was great. He wore um, Old Spice. And um, <laughs> I would wake up in the morning and I could, oh, Uncle Willie's here, Uncle Willie's here, because I could smell his Old Spice. And it was so exciting. So anyway, um, we, as a family, this is so corny, but we still, my mother's 96 years old, we still get together as a family, at least once a month for all the birthdays, and we all play guitar or ukuleles and sing traditional songs, and she kind of runs the show, and it's just it's our great. family wonderful. musical corny get-together, mm. you know, And we, but we love it. And so, he, but when Willie was alive, um, he kind of ran the show, and he was singing on the radio in Las Vegas and stuff, but... Um, he was just more of a traditionalist. So I learned the love of traditional Americana music way back then and uh, just kind of carried on from there. And so there was a, a wonderful radio station in L.A. Um, well, still is KPFK. Yes. They had the radio show, Coming the uh, folk music yes. um, yeah. with Roz Lerman and... Um, folk music show it was on saturday mornings and uh we'd listen to it every saturday morning like from eight to ten when i was little and they would play you know um all the traditional blues but uh oh the nitty-gritty dirt band and so many oh, the different of the traditional were actually going that that early I, I thought they were a product of the sort of 60s uh, actually, well, they they start out. They have, or, well, this was well, probably the, early sixties. Well, we'll this was early sixties. Oh anyway, gosh, yeah. they, they were before that. My first yeah, okay. concert oh, I didn't was that. the okay. Dirt Band yeah, yeah, when yeah. I was oh, thirteen. This is cool. yeah. When I was thirteen, my first concert was with to see the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Wow. They would play Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Buffy St. Marie and all of the early traditional, a uh, lot of seventy eights, Lead Belly, oh. um, and. Uh, my favorite was Mississippi John Hurt. I just loved the way he sang and played and and um, the, the coffee blues. <laughs> yes. Come on now, babe. <laughs> well, you're spinning <laughs> these on 78s. Yeah. Well, this is, well, they were playing, I think he was already on LPs by then. But, yeah. uh, so my first record, when I saved up my allowance, I went out and bought the Avalon <laughs> album by... Mississippi John Hurt. Were you wandered down to the record store in Compton to buy a Sears? Sears. Oh, okay. Sears had a great record department. Oh, that's yeah. Wonderful. And I was allowed yeah. to go there. So by yourself. By myself. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. So uh, still have that uh, I bet record you do. too. And mm -hmm. I bet it's immaculate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it may be uh, gently loved at this gently point. Gently loved. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you can put up with some ambiance. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> but uh, I'll run it through Isotope RX7 and clean it yeah, up. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> See, they come. The technical stuff's coming out already. This is good. <laughs> All right, so what I'd like to know is how you sort of eased your way into um, music. Uh, well, again, it was around us all the time. So it was uh, just by osmosis, loving music, hearing mm. music. Uh, my brothers and I were in orchestra. At the, Compton had a wonderful um, youth symphony orchestra, festival orchestra it was called, and in 
in our elementary schools back then, we had band and orchestra. So we started at eight years old and chorus wow. at eight years old. And so I was playing the flute and also piano lessons. And um, so, and they would record us too. Uh, it was a, the Compton Festival Orchestra would meet every Saturday morning and we'd have two hour rehearsals but it was a big all uh, the whole school system you got you auditioned and got mm -hmm. to be in this orchestra and then you would go and play at festivals or universities or whatever and compete with other school systems and you'd get a medal and we always <laughs> came in first and but the cool thing was they would record us at the end of the season every yeah. year so um what were they recording on big old grunge they would or something? uh you know i have no idea because oh. i was on stage oh yes so you yes were. <laughs> um but um you know the two microphones overhead and it'd be in the auditorium and um so those were my very first records, my Great. very first recording. And do you still and, have them? Oh gosh, and they're oh, they're <laughs> just they're hilarious. You know, pomp and circumstance. And we listen to it. My oh. my family and I, and we just we die laughing. It's so bad. But uh, but there we were. Got to hear them. We need those for the outro. <laughs> I can get those for you. I know right where they are. Um, yeah, they're hilarious. Uh, anyway, so started there, and um, and we all got ukuleles when I was little. It was kind of a right. Oh God, of you're passage. versatile. You're playing the flute. You're playing the piano. You're playing strings. Well, it was because I'm I'm the youngest of this whole um, clan of the generation of it of the cousins and um, my mom and and her sister, my, my Aunt Joanne, were on um, Cliffy Stone's Town Hall Party, which was a radio show in the 50s coming out of Compton. Compton had a lot of music mm. going on. They also had uh, Hometown Jamboree, and they would have little Brenda Lee on there. Really? They, they would have the, the Collins Brothers. Yep. Uh, they would have... Oh, just um, Tom T. Hall, um, all these people. We'd see them in the grocery store, you know, McGowan's grocery store, you know, and uh, in Compton. Compton was a really wonderful, magical place mm. to be at in the 50s. And um, we were there till 1965, right um, right before the, the Watts riots. Oh, my God, yeah. But... Um, a lot, of, a lot of music and a lot of art and culture going on there, believe it or not, Um I'm so glad I grew up there. Yeah, so my mom and my aunt would always sing, and, and even my grandfather in Kansas, he would sing all these music hall mm. um, songs. And, and something interesting about him, I would like to say, he he was uh, from a different era than we are now, and he loved all of these blues roots music, and he would buy all these 78s, and one day... He bought one, and he there was a picture of the people playing on the cover, and they were black. Uh, and oh dear, yeah, and he was mortified. Isn't that awful? My mom told me that, and it just broke my heart because he was such a great guy. But mm, no, that's as you that, say. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's very unusual for a 78 to have a picture on it. Well, it just got to, yeah, as yeah. time went on. Yeah, they started um, sleeping. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, by the 40s or whenever they were actually 
coming out with mm. LPs of yeah. the, the traditional Michael music. Yeah, right. So is that isn't that sad? Yeah, it is very. That is mm. so sad. Um, anyways, but there was always music coming mm. from him. Um, music hall songs and and my mom and my aunt would sing don't go in the lion's den tonight mother darling the lion's are ferocious and may bite this is musical stuff yes yes so um yeah, so we had that going while washing dishes and drying dishes. But now, while you're always doing on. this, you're also getting interested in film. Well, yes. Um, one of the things that can happen when we are, uh, when you grow up in near Hollywood, mm. is that uh, you get to be in the film industry, and there's uh, legal child labor, which yes. is a lot of fun. Um, and uh, this happened with lots of kids in my school. There was a, an agency called the Screen Children's Guild that you could sign, parents could sign their kids up, and uh, they would get cast as the background kids, or um, some even got catapulted to, you know, speaking parts or whatever, but they wanted to keep that at, you know, a minimum unless you're going to be a star. But like uh, uh, my brother, we were, we were signed up. At, he was eight, and then uh, a year later, I was signed up at eight. Um, so we could make money and help support us because um, we didn't have a lot of money and mm. had six kids. And so that with this money that we made in the Screen Children's Guild, working on you know TV shows, TV series. He, my brother's actual first job was in The Birds. His very first thing was in Hitchcock's Birds. Oh, really? Yeah, I yeah. And if you if you watch the movie, there's a there's a birthday party scene, and he's the one who dives under the the um, picnic table. And if you blink, you miss it. Yeah, but I don't but, see but, no. but that yes. was it. Yeah, that Fabulous. started it all. And did he get him a side card? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so we got um, so we got paid, and with that money, I could buy my flute. He was able to buy his trumpet. And it was very empowering. I had a social security card, but I just learned how to write cursive, you know, oh, and right. I saw my little signature on there. It's kind of cool. And, um, yeah, and so we started working in television and film, and, and for me, the fun part, being on the set or on location or whatever, they're Westerns back then, so you're in a Western town, and, and the uh, cameraman and all let me be behind the camera looking oh. and and seeing how things were done and then they say cue the kids and we go oh shoot I gotta go back can I come back oh yeah you're okay come on back so I go and do my little thing whatever it was they wanted me to do run down the street or you know roll over or do you know they had to just the background kids and um then I get to go back but we were my brother and I were both smitten and were totally into film and so in high school you know went to all the movies in Westwood and and studied they had film classes we moved to Torrance the South Bay and um so in high school studied there but I was always into music and um my my boyfriend we started going steady at the age of 12 <laughs> um he was uh he already had a band and um was a great singer actually he Eventually became the lead singer of Journey before Steve oh, Perry. Oh, now we're talking. Okay, okay. Yeah, so he was already good as a kid. Now. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, he had a band, and um, they used to rehearse in his 
um, garage, and I would sit on the kitchen stool in front of the drum kit. Dean Madaloni. Dino Madaloni is still a drummer and yes. has a studio and all that now. But um, So his drum kit wouldn't move forward. So I know all the drum parts to Sunshine of Your Love and all of that. Because back then, they had the Teenage Fair at the Hollywood Palladium every um, Easter vacation and it started out more as a you know cute little thing with uh, more bubblegum music and things like that but in the early 60s it got to be really pretty heavy i mean uh robert's band uh was scheduled to go on 330 before the chambers brothers came in oh my god yeah. yeah um and then i actually saw leon russell and the shelter people uh, playing on the main stage at night and a special guest was going to come and it was going on and on and on and I was, I think I was 14 and it was getting too late and I knew I was going to get in trouble so I had to leave at midnight and go back home and on the radio we heard that the special guest that appeared at the Teenage Fair main stage was Jimi Hendrix. Oh, damn it. (laughs) I know. But I did get to see him later at the Monterey Pop Festival at Devonshire Downs, so it was okay. Oh, okay. Yes. We've got to talk about that. Yeah. That, that's uh, not on my list, Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> well, uh, that was at, uh, yeah, that was a three-day festival. Yeah, I know had. exactly. Yeah. Derek Taylor, who we know very well. Oh, right, Derek. He ran that. Yeah. Oh, he did. I didn't yes, realize yeah, he yeah, ran that. He was that. definitely part and parcel of it. Um, as we, I know Derek, I did like Derek very well, and that was one of the things that, if you look at it, that set that's just come out, I think his credit's on there somewhere. There. It was unbelievable uh, that day. Edward Hawkins Singers, um, Spirit, um, Jesse Colin Young, and we waited and waited and waited, and um, Hendrix finally showed up. He'd got busted for heroin. <laughs> And so they had to get him out of jail. So he finally went on late at night, and he was real cranky. But at least we saw him. Yes, true. My God. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, they got well, him out. You know, we really leapt ahead now. I know, I did. So let There's me, so, no, I digress. I need to get you into film, you know, into yeah, so Long into, Beach and film school. Okay, and right. So, so anyway, <laughs> so I was into music all along and studying film So in high school. So... Uh, when I went into college, I um, well in junior college, I discovered the audiovisual department ah. and with all the gear and, and with scopes yes. and and, and uh, video was beginning. You know, two inch uh, helioscan video mm. machines and all of that. So it, I was bitten by that. So studied that and then went to uh, signed up for Long Beach State for their television, radio, and film production major and was studying that and um and one of my professors was also um teaching at usc so he allowed me to take film classes at usc i could just audit him he says oh just come in yeah so so during the day i'd go to long beach state and at night i'd go to usc and it was it was wonderful but um this same boyfriend um the guitar player in his band named roger was um he said, well, you know, I just got this job engineering for Leon Russell, and Leon has a home studio. You should come over and see it. Well, I was, you know, dumbstruck. Mm. I was such a fan of Leon Russell and, you know, Delta Lady and Song for You and all of that had been had come out. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Uh, he said, come over and see the studio. And I went, 
see the studio. Who cares about a studio? I want to meet Leon Russell. So that night after school, that day after school, I go over to Leon's house in Encino and uh, go up there and ring the doorbell. And Leon actually answers oh, the lovely. door. And yeah. I just about fainted, just about fainted. <laughs> and he goes, oh, you must be Roger's friend. Come on in. And, and I just went, oh, my gosh. But I walk into the foyer of this house, and it was Lou Costello's old house. Oh, really? Yeah, from Alvin Costello. Yeah. He died in that house, apparently, <laughs> in the 60s. So that was kind of, ooh. Um, very cool mid-century house. But I walk in the foyer, and to the right of me, I hear all of these beautiful voices coming out like angels singing, background voices, and... Um, so I go to the right where Roger's in. They, they had converted this big dining room into a control room. And there was, um, you know, a big console and a sidecar console. There was an MCI console and a Sony console. And, and he had a Stevens 40-track tape machine that only about three people 40 had. 40 tracks in those days. Yeah. yeah. Leon, he was extremely innovative. People mm. didn't understand how brilliant he was mm. as far as technology went as well so he was always on the cutting edge and checking things out but i just walked in and they were working on the uh album will of the wisp mm -hmm. and there were 21 tracks of background vocals of leon's wife mary mccrary singing and it was if you ever listen to the song will of the wisp you will hear those voices and it was my epiphany it was like the angels were singing and i saw this gear and i heard this and i said that's it i said roger show me how to work this and the next day I dropped out of university. I found a recording school, which was not easy back in those days. Yeah. I signed up and then went home and told my parents. Oh, dear. And <laughs> and my dad was so cool because he had always... Oh, good. <laughs> yes. Well, he was he was a, um, an engineer, well, in aerospace engineering at right. uh, Northrop with Jack Northrop and was teaching audio engineering or t teaching aerospace uh, power plant mechanics and all. He always wanted his kids to all have a um, college degree because mm. he didn't get one. Right, you know, okay. He was a brilliant man and wrote textbooks and all. So for me to drop out of university was a big deal. And I was ready, you know, get mm. out the nails, whatever. This is what I have to do. And I went up to him and I told him what I did. And he goes, you know... I think you'll do just fine. I was wrong to expect that of everybody else. Go ahead. And now he finally had his engineer. Okay. So, and, and how old were you at the time? I was uh, 21. 21. No, okay. 20. You have a little explaining to do. Oh. oh Roger. Not again. Roger. <laughs> okay. Who is Roger? Well, yes. Well, so... Uh, so I signed up for the school, and I go to the first class, and it's me and 50 guys. And um, back then, there were no um, schools like they have today that have control rooms and their own facilities to learn in and all of that. So it was just uh, in this old building on Hollywood Boulevard, uh, and they were talking about audio. They weren't playing anything about it uh they weren't no no examples of what limiting was or velocity and amplitude and phase and doppler effects and waveforms and all these things and i just panicked i went oh my gosh i'm you know 
it's Chinese to me. I I really messed up here. And at the end of the class, I called Roger over at Leon's, and and, and I just was, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I don't understand. It's just, come over. So because I dropped out of university, I had Tuesdays and Thursdays open. The classes were Monday and Wednesday nights. So I went over the next morning and rang the doorbell and said, hi, Leon, where's Roger? <laughs> and uh, Roger said, okay, this is a limiter. This is an 1176. Mm-hmm. This is how you use this. This is what compression does. This is what limiting does. This is what a parametric equalizer is. This is a passive equalizer. This is, you know, all these things. So what happened was for the year and a half that I was taking this course, if I had any issues or learned something cool in class that I wanted to practice, I could go over to Leon's house. And before they started recording at like two or three or four in the afternoon, I could practice. And um, Roger was also a musician, but Roger was also working. He was about 18 years old, and he was working on what he called his little invention. And um, he was, uh, his name was Roger Lynn. Okay. (laughs) And he was uh, building the Lynn drum. So um, the very first drum sampling Mm -hmm. machine. And so um, anyway, that's who I got to learn how to engineer from. So I had this great advantage, but I was so incredibly myopic about doing, becoming an engineer that I think... The universe just opened the doors for mm-hmm. me, and because I was just so driven, and uh, so not only did I go to one of these recording schools, which didn't exist before, so I was getting that extra training. Typically, before then, anybody just kind of sat in and cleaned toilets and, Wash, and yeah. made coffee, and hopefully sometimes they got mentored by someone and got to sit in the studio. I got this education from Soundmasters Recording School, Brian Inglesby, who was a great engineer who started it. And then I had this wonderful opportunity to go to Leon Russell's house and practice. So, you know, it's it's an acquired skill. You know, you're, you train your ears, you get used to you get the, the gear, you get comfortable with it, you it's kind of like learning how to drive a stick shift in, mm. you know, in a very simple terms. Um, in the beginning, you're going, okay, the clutch does this, and, and the gears does this, and I go, you know, and you're jamming the gears and hopefully you don't ruin the engine. But eventually, you get so good at it. You, it's, you don't even think about it. But it's yeah. the vehicle that yeah. takes yes. you where you want to go. go. Yes. So takes you home at night. Yeah, so <laughs> this was, I learned to drive that car. And in such a wonderful way, also becoming a kind of a little member of the Leon Russell family community there. Yeah, my God, that's pretty good. Their great. kids, and you'd see Joe Cocker there. And, and um, oh, here's a, here's a fun little story that happened there. There was a, one of his uh, drum roadies and was there named Teddy Jack Eddy from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he and his wife and two little kids were kind of staying at Leon's a lot. And so and he was wanting to be an actor and and whatever. Um, so we got to be friends and all that. And several years later, when I was actually working um, at the village, where they would say, "Okay, you're working on this project today," they said they're going to be working on the Buddy Holly story. And 
uh, we're doing some studio recordings and all right. of that. And I said, great, who's who's the talent or whatever? And he said, um, Gary Busey. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay, you know, cool. And uh, so anyway, I'm going, I'm the assistant, so I'm setting up and all of that, and these people show up, and then walks this guy, and I, I look up and I go, hey, Daddy Jack, how you doing? And he goes, I, I was so surprised to see him. I thought it was the drum roadie was coming in or whatever, and he comes running over and says, don't call me that anymore. Nobody calls me that. And I said, what? what? Well, what do they call you? And he goes, my name's Gary Busey. And I went, what? <laughs> Gary Busey? What kind of name's that? And anyway, I always it, took, it was the hardest time to not call him Teddy Chad. Oh, that is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's my little... We sort of moved sort of into yeah, village, I... village now. I mean, well, so I'll is, go, there, yeah. is there a transition we have yes, to go through? Yes, there is. Okay, so I graduate... Yes, so <laughs> I graduate from recording school, and um, I'm ready to get a job. And I really am thinking I'm pretty ready, because mm. all assistants think, yeah. Or people graduate from college recording school think oh i can do this you know i know so much now well uh, i knew a lot more than a lot of people but anyway uh so i got a job at uh, as an assistant at the village i applied at wally hiders first oh really wally is that just up the street from here yeah That's not right. far from here and that That's was right. still going and um uh, then also the village because i like the location west la mm. and all of that and i saw that they had cool stuff so i so I applied over there, and um, I had a friend over there who inspired me to, you know, give it a shot. And um, the cool thing about the village at that time—I mean, it's a fabulous studio anyway—but the owner, Jordy Hormel of Hormel Spam and Chili and all oh. of that, he was the one who started the village. There's only three small studios at the time, two fairly sized studios one small one upstairs um he had this idea that women would be very good in the studio in the sense that uh, he felt we had good organizational skills we had good um nurturing skills we had uh our egos wouldn't get in the way where sometimes male assistant engineers this was i'm just sharing with you his thought pattern then yes this is the 70s so That's right, got it. all of that yeah. um uh we when i say nurturing skills i'm not saying you know that we were expected to do weird no, things so the women nurturing. who were, yes. yeah <laughs> the women who were hired were all there are four women assistant engineers and one female tech who's uh, Wendy Bluth, who is now an astrophysicist. Oh, my God. You know? Yeah, I mean, everybody was really good uh, and professional and had it down. They needed people who could really, you know, keep all the, the tapes and the notes and everything together as well as set up microphones and and do everything so we've um it was an incredible opportunity um because not a lot of people were hiring women then also there weren't a lot of women wanting to to be recording engineers Uh, again if i had not stumbled upon this as a, a possible career move i never would have known it existed back then so because of that um that was the direction I wanted to go in. Well, there were a few other um, women who were 
like that as well had their own paths. Terry Becker, who was one of my mentors, um, Carla Frederick and Barbara Isaac all uh, went on to be award-winning, um, very capable engineers, post-production supervisor. Um, sadly, they've all passed Those away. I'm the only around. one oh, left. Wow. Yeah, we were best friends. But, uh, so I'm the only one still championing them. <laughs> but uh, back then, it was a huge opportunity, and Gary Starr was the studio manager who hired me. And uh, so... Um, my very first session happened a couple days later on August 22nd, 1976. Oh, good. I'm glad we got the date in. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. I'll never forget that day. Um, I was brought into Studio B to be kind of a third. I was learning. I was, you know, first day in to assist another assistant to observe how things went in the studio. Fortunately, I had had a lot of time in the studio at Leon. So um, there's... Studio protocols that need to be followed, and you keep your mouth shut and let them do their thing and stay out of the way, but take, be intuitive and know what needs to be done. So I was already comfortable in a control room situation. Um, but this was with um, my very first session was with Alice Coltrane. Oh, really? Yes, yeah. the great jazz pianist uh, and, yes, yes, and yes. widow of John Coltrane, yeah. and her son was on drums 14 years old and it was a tracking date meaning all the musicians and all of that were there uh, Ed Michelle was the producer and Baker Bigsby was the engineer and they did a lot of jazz projects at the village as well as rock and so I, I hit the floor running. My God, that's amazing. Yes. Well, you could do that back then. Um, it was a wonderful time. The, um, it was kind of the heyday of the recording industry. Big budgets. Um, big record companies had lots of money. Um, and there were a lot of studios and a lot of great talent. So uh, my goal had been... My myopic goal when I decided I wanted to do this was I wanted to work in the best studio with the best engineers, the best producers, and the best artists to learn. I just wanted to learn the best. So it may have meant that I would be an assistant a little longer than somebody who went right into being an engineer with somebody in a smaller facility, but I learned from the best Um and I'm those tools that I learned from the different producers like um, uh, Gary Katz and Roger Nichols with Steely Dan. Um, I worked on the last waltz with Robbie Robertson oh, really? okay. yeah. and and the, Rob the, the, the album, not oh, the album, not the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. album. Um, well, let's talk about some of the. So anyway, all of these were available yeah. at the so village. Now all of a sudden, you're immersed in like well, the, the, you know, the the best studio in town at the moment. You know? One of well, one the of the very best. You've got, you know, the, the, yeah, they're all around you because yeah. this was the golden triangle at the time of great yes, studios. Yeah. Um, so tell me about Asia for one thing. You got immersed in that. Then we got to talk about Fleetwood Mac. And there's so many things I want to get to, and how you sort of uh, dealt with uh, the, the situation in the studio. Um, you know, and any chauvinism that might be going on, because that oh, strikes well. me there's some... Well, You're it, the only girl at one point. Um, well, at the time, there were four of us. I got hired 
Uh, there were three when I got hired, and, and Barbara Isaac and I got hired on the same day. Terry Becker had been there two months before. Oh. And so she was showing us how to cable my cables correctly and do all of this in mm. that very first day. And then Carla Frederick hired on um, two months later, but she'd already been doing mastering over at DCT and and cutting records and things. But um, oh, was she cutting lathes when she was on the yeah, lathe? Oh, yeah, really? she was doing wow. that. Um, one of the things that was so interesting that um, when... I first got there, um, and so I had to learn the ropes and all, and they'd say, well, um, if you're not on a, a session, come in anyway and practice, which was great. So they uh, said, well, you know, go up to the tape library. There's all these outtakes of all these different projects that have been here. Pick a tape, put it up on the tape machine, and start playing around and get comfortable. So I go up in the tape library, and I go, oh, let me see. There's... Um, Bob Dylan, and there's, and there's, and there's hey, Steely Dan, and and there's um, uh, you know the Rolling Stones, and there's Crosby, Stills and Nash, and no, oh, dude, so shoot, many choices. Let me think. Okay, so I pulled I pulled down a, a Bob Dylan two inch and and put that up and start playing. You know, it was like those were the oh, just go pick something and practice. Grief. <laughs> Go, do you think they're behind? Oh my god, I know, isn't that, isn't that having the combination? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was cool. Um, and so anyway, as time went on and I observed more and more, um, sitting in on different sessions, I finally was uh, allowed to be an official assistant on my own, and um, and so worked on a variety of projects that, um, uh, then the, the time came for them to put me on an actual album on my own with an with an artist, mm. and um, and that band was Steely Dan. Oh, there we go. And so they um, came up to me, and uh, Gary Starr said, "Well, this, you know, they're coming in, and um, they're going to be here a long time. Is that okay with you? Or you know, this is we're considering you to be the assistant engineer, or." or we're looking to see who would be a good fit. Well, fortunately, where I was staying at that time, because I was moving into the area and, and needed to find an apartment because I got this job. Right. And living at, in South Redondo Beach was too far of a drive. So, you know, to be committed to this, move towards the studio. Um, so I was looking for an apartment. So where I was staying, my friend worked for Warner Brothers. And I said, get me every one of those Steely Dan records that you can. And I learned them all from um, Countdown to Ecstasy to, all the way through Royal Scam. That's what they had done up until then. Who had played on them, listened to them, learned their sound, learned everything about them. So I would be prepared. And I could say, I'm, I'm the one for this. And so I got chosen. And there you go. Yeah. And you've developed a classic. Yes. Yes. I was very little did I know what I was getting into at all. I truly didn't. I mean, um but uh back then talking about what it was like being a, a woman and all of that, even when I was still in school or 
when I first got hired and all, people were already saying, well, you know, there aren't very many jobs in, in audio, and, and that just isn't something that women do. And, and you know, but they're, why people say those things, I don't understand, even back then. And so I would just say to them, well, you know what? I don't need for you to tell me no. I need for you to tell me how. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to tell me no, thank you very much. And can you tell me how? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how? Um, because this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, you know, somebody does it. The thing is, and this is something people need to know, these these jobs and these um, areas of, you know, career moves and all that, somebody is doing these. Somebody is doing them. Why not? Why not? Why not me? You. Why not you? But you ran into some resistance uh, with Supertramp, I hear. Oh, well, so months went on in... Um, and actually, one of the reasons I wanted to become a recording engineer, um, I was studying film at Long Beach State, and uh, all these great records came out, like uh, Crime of the Century, 10CC, um, Ask Rufus, um, I'm, uh, Terry Reed, um, all these wonderful records, um, Pink Floyd, Genesis, all this. It was just an era of wonderful, wonderful music and kind of progressive rock and getting more theatrical and and all of that, spooky tooth and, you know. So Crime of the Century comes out. I hear that record with School, Bloody Well Right, all that, mm-hmm. just the quality of that record. And I said out loud, I want to make records that sound like this. And without even thinking how you did that, it just came out of my mouth at this group of people when we were listening to it. I said, oh, I want to make records that sound like this. And little did I know, down the line, working at the village, one day I get the news I'm hearing around the studio, Supertramp has booked to, uh-huh. to be at the village. The village recorders. Oh. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, actually, I was working on the Gaucho album at the time, and I'd already, with Steely Dan, I'd already done Asia, taken a break, worked on other projects that had come through, and then when Gaucho came and they said, well, you know, you get to be on that. And I was going, you know, it's I, I don't want to do another 10-and-a-half-month, year-long record with them. I'm seeing my colleagues advance and move forward and become engineers on their own right, go out independent, whatever, and I'm still assisting at the village on incredible music, don't get me wrong, but I'm not... I I felt I had um, gotten as much as I could get uh, learning to be an engineer on the Asia album, and I started Gaucho, but my heart was... I was just going, shoot, I don't know. You know, I want to move forward now. I was kind of... Um, it's like that thing, the the pain of staying in the pod um, is greater than the pain of blossoming, <laughs> you know, so you're ready to burst. So I was ready to do that. I, I paraphrase very badly, <laughs> just, I'm very to, badly, but you know what out. I mean. <laughs> you, you've all heard it. You've yes. all heard it. So um, so then I hear super tramps coming in and I went, oh, that's, that's it. And go up to Dick LaPalm, who's the main manager at the studio and a great guy he used to be at chess records and managed nat Cole yeah. and all that and um muddy waters and mm, yeah, we, everybody he was just yeah. great um anyway go up to him and say dick dick 
I really want to work on the Super Trump record. This, you know, they're the reason I want to become an engineer. I really want to do this. And he goes, Lenice, that's really great, except they don't want a girl. Boom. And I just went, huh? <laughs> Truly, I was, I was dumbstruck. I went, what? What? I'd never heard that. I never heard that. Um, through all the records I yes. worked on, um, and some of them were, you know, you had to know how to hang. You had to be comfortable in the studio. Um, I was. I have three brothers. I always was around guys, very comfortable with men. So I wasn't, um, it was easy for me to be around them. And I didn't think, oh, you know, I'm intimidated by them. Or, and I was never starstruck, either. Mm. That was an important thing. You know, all these famous people, oh, you're working with Neil Diamond today. Okay. Um, you're working on the band. Okay. Um, yeah, oh, I worked with George Harrison oh, one day. Oh, wow. Yeah. On, at, um, the, at the Village Recorders. At the Village. Yes. Yeah. Um, he... Um, We've digressed, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, well... Uh, <laughs> You know, when he had that lawsuit for the um, that song, this um, My Sweet Lord, oh, right. and he's so fine, yes. and he lost. Yes, right. Well, he thought it was totally ridiculous, so he wrote this song called This Song, and he wrote it quickly about, um, you know, how crazy this song was, and went in the studio, recorded it in one day in Studio A, and then that night they had booked the L.A. Uh, courthouse to do the music video, and it just went like boom, 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 boom. And so I got to be the assistant on that, and then um, they mixed the song, and um, then they needed somebody to take the seven-and-a-half-inch quarter-track copies, remember, that was yeah, even yes. before cassette, yeah, yeah. Um, to the courthouse at midnight. And so here I'd been there since, you know, eight in the morning mm. doing all that. And I said, yeah, I'll take them, you know. And so I went down there and I got to go in the courthouse and actually, you know, hand them to George. Oh, to and, Georgie. Oh, lovely. And he was yes. great. Yes. Yeah. So sweet, I got to work on that man. song. Yeah, right. yes. I got to work on this song. Oh, George you Harrison didn't tell me that village. before. No. No, when we were doing our well, prep, you did not mention that. I did, you know, some things, <laughs> there was just so much. You can only remember. Oh, yeah. George Harrison, right. Um Anyway, um, oh, George. Yes. But I was never, I was very comfortable. So, oh no, we, we, we've lost track. Yes, but, where, but, where but were we going with this? Oh, America. super, super trip. So super I've never been told. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, no, this is. I just felt in my heart. Well, this is this is wrong. This is just wrong. I'm the right person for this record. Yeah. I know all of their music and uh, was a huge fan and. It just seemed so right that I would be the one to get to work on this. Oh, boy. You know, I finally get to join my band, you know. So they said, well, sorry. You know, the, and at the time, there were four girl assistants and two male assistants, two boy assistants. And so I'm just fuming inside. And time's going on. Time's going on. I go, I know this is going to change. I know this is going to change because this is just wrong. And nope, nope. They still just want a guy. They still just want a guy. Okay. And I'm not even sure they even made a big deal about it as far as the band goes. I don't know how that came out. You think they were just because kind of, they're lovely people. You think they were just nervous because they couldn't say fuck or something in front of you? Or do you think they were... Oh, gosh. I mean, that was so... <laughs> that was so over. <laughs> I worked with Kinky Friedman and his Texas oh. Jew boys. <laughs> waitress, oh, waitress, please sit on my oh, face. Yes. Yeah, okay, okay. right? right. But I so, wondered if that was their attitude or was it just I, who chauvinism? Knows? Who knows? <laughs> All I know was, at, you know, 
I'm an assistant, and and for some reason, gender has come up. Yes, I know it's silly, but I just wondered. Yeah, if, and uh, to, uh, I, Brits and well, and the thing Brits. was, it, it never had before. And again, um, I don't even know if I think maybe they were saying, "Well, we have some, you know, we have women and 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 men assistants, and um, maybe they always gave people a choice. I don't know, but typically, yeah. typically, people really liked our energy in the studio. It just took all, it wasn't all testosterone all the time, yeah. or it wasn't just the the girls or the wives who had another role to play. Yes, um, I saw your eyebrows yes, go up. Yeah, yes. not my role. And um, uh, I don't know, but they always uh, they would That's request so weird, us. Though, isn't yeah, it? they would request. Oh, you know, I want to work with uh, with Lindy. Or actually, I had a. Uh, a nickname that could be taken incorrectly, and I want people to understand why I was called this. Um, early on, I wore this perfume, and I uh, walked into the studio one day, and somebody said, man, you smell like the bee's knees. <laughs> and um, and that's a compliment. That's a good thing. Yes. And uh, I'm Lanise, and so people said, bee's knees, bee's yeah, knees. I, I became knees. <laughs> And um, oh, yeah, yeah, and there's a group, and I know, and some Oops. in the in the past few years because uh, there's still the, our little family of people who worked at the village and who engineers and producers I assisted still call me knees, and they can because yes. it comes from it's a term of endearment that's very yes, right, lovely for me, yeah. and um, so when somebody calls me knees and they're that person, that means a lot. If somebody else calls me that, no, say, nobody can call, you know, no, it's like only your mom can call you Johnny Poo or whatever. But, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, only these people could call me niece. But other people said, you know, later on, you really shouldn't let people call you that, you know. It's so derogatory. And I said, you have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. To me, it's, I love being called niece by this person, this person, these yeah. these people. So they call me niece. So if okay. Dick says niece. That Sorry, was... it's still not happening. <laughs> so we got closer and closer. It was a Friday night before they were supposed to start on Sunday. And I'm just hanging on going, I know this has to change. And now nah, six o'clock at night, still nothing. I go, so, uh, so I leave. I'm mad. I'm go with my boyfriend to the Pear Garden. Oh. Remember the Pear Garden? Garden. On, no, it was uh, a great Lassie hangout, a great rock and roll Yeah, hangout. it was a yes. wonderful yeah. sushi bar hangout. Yeah. You saw everybody there yeah. and had sushi and, and Pear Garden and specials. Yes, I remember the, the specials. Yeah, they yeah. were in these brandy snifters and they were like mango juice and had plastic monkeys and umbrellas and all this <laughs> yes. stuff and 151 rum. Yes. And <laughs> so I just got blasted and I was mad. So I got drunk. He drove me home. I walk in, and my roommate at the time, um, who had worked at the village as a receptionist, had just gotten a job uh, working for Supertramp's management company called Mismanagement. Mm. And I walk in, and damn, if their manager, um, Dave Margerison, and their publicist were sitting in my living room with her, getting high and partying, and it's like rubbing my nose in it. And I walk in and pass by and say, good night. And I go in my room. It's about 8 o'clock and I pass out. I'm so mad. And that really made me mad. And um, 
Then about 10 o'clock, the phone rings. It wakes me out of my drunken stupor. And it's the traffic woman um, she, from the village. She calls and she says, be in Studio B at noon on Sunday. You're Good working grief. with Super Trump. And suddenly I'm <laughs> totally sober. And, <laughs> and like that. Went, um, uh, what happened? And she said, well... One of the guys uh, was already on a project, and the other one didn't want to do it because it lasts too long. So you're the default. Oh, great. And I went, fantastic. So I now I'm all sober and happy and put on my robe and walk out, and they're still partying in the living room. And I go, hi, and go get some orange juice because <laughs> I'm totally dehydrated and go back to bed, but I'm all happy and happy, you know. So the, anyway, that happened. So Sunday, I'm I'm there at noon, and I walk into Studio B, and and um, their sixth member of the band named Russell Pope, who had been with them forever, um, was setting up the console. He did all their live sound, amazing front of house engineer, and um, but he's sitting at the console, and he's a very subdued, quiet sort of person, and he turns his head to the side to see me walk in and, and um, with this perplexed look on his face he says may I help you <laughs> and I said pronounced English voice, yes, yes may I help you <laughs> and I said well actually the question is may I help you I'm going to spin I'll be assisting on your project good comeback though yes and <laughs> and uh, his eyes he just got the big eyes you know it's like oh my gosh and I said um Shall I go in? Are they setting up drums now? Or what was? How can I help? Oh uh, well, yeah, yes, yes. Go stutter, in. stutter. But he was just a stunned mullet, and, <laughs> and, uh, and but he got over it. And then different people started flowing in. Pete Henderson, who was the producer and engineer on the record, who was uh, only 23 at the time. Good he was God, Jeff, really? Yes. He was Jeff Emmerich's protege, protege and he yeah. had already done Quietest Moments at Caribou with them. And here's this baby-faced, wonderful guy. I'm, I'm the ripe old age of 26 <laughs> at this point, I think, or 25-something. You know, so uh, here's this person, lovely, um, and we worked together on that record for seven and a half months. Good Lord. Wow. And it was a fabulous experience. And I'm actually singing background vocals oh, really? on one song. Um, I'm on um, Oh Darling. Uh, there's at the end, there's some background vocals. Catch you, lady. That's me. And uh, wow. <laughs> I'm going to wow. catch you later. Yeah, so I'm doing that. And um, then I'm yelling. On, surprise on me. And I'm doing <laughs> finger snaps on Goodbye Stranger. I'm on uh, Nervous Wreck. Go, give a damn, fight while you can, kill. You know, we're all out there. So I'm on four songs. Wow. Yeah, there's another one I'm on. I can't remember which one. Anyway, yeah, so I got to do that. And they came in and they, you know, put down rugs and lamps and put in pictures and plants and moved in <laughs> studio God. b and that's where it started good lord wow so, that's a fantastic story <laughs> while we're in the village i just wondered you know how were women treated there particularly in recording studios probably all around the the the, the, the country but particularly at the village there well must... it was um it was an interesting time i have to say uh 
while I was going to engineering school to support myself, I was working in a fashion, French fashion store, um, Italian shoes, and I was modeling. Wow. And um, that's how I paid for my engineering school. And uh, so I was, you know, kind of fancy and snazzy, but um, I knew that uh, to be taken seriously, I had to present myself seriously. So when I was assisting, I would wear my Westlake Audio t-shirt and my jeans and sneakers. And I, when I first started and um, wouldn't wear makeup, wore my glasses and uh, just wanted to be taken seriously as an engineer, not as a girl engineer, uh, even though uh, to me, even then, I felt that um, it was important that my role be genderless, and I feel that way today. It's uh, I can present myself differently today because I have a history. However, back then, starting out, it was very important that they took me seriously. Now, uh, what it was like was that I found that the... Um, more accomplished or more talented or more professional musicians or whatever really didn't care whether I was a guy or a girl. They just needed me to do my job well and also bring, you know, be a fun hang in the studio, be an asset, not a liability. And that's what I could do. You know, I could use a little bit of my personality, but quite honestly, as an assistant early on, your your job is to be quiet and anticipate what the needs are and take care of them. And that's who you're supposed to be. It's not about you in the studio. It's about uh, making sure the, the session runs smoothly. The assistant has the hardest job in the studio, I think, in the whole uh, production team as well. They have to be there first. They have to, they're the last ones there. They have so many, so many responsibilities and just have to be totally present. It's the hardest job. Mm-hmm. As you become the engineer, uh, it eases up because you've got that assistant reading your mind and anticipating what mic to put up and we're going to do pianos next and, you know, listening to the dialogue in the control room. But as far as women goes, uh, so I knew to be very professional, uh, but there were the, the ones, and there was a, a certain expectation back then and probably... Still now, I don't know, uh, that, oh, if there's a woman in the studio, then there's a potential, you know, um, other events can occur. And there can be, you know, maybe she will have sex with me or whatever, you know, (laughs) certain musicians. Well, uh, I knew that for me, that would be the kiss of death. Excuse Mm, the pun. Uh, I wanted to be... A, pro- a producer and engineer so myopically, and I knew I had to be twice as good as the guys. I had to be really good at my job. Um, not just better than the guys, better than anybody. I knew I had to be the best I could possibly be. And also, to be taken seriously, I had to be, you know, um, kind of androgynous or... Uh, well, I just never would sleep with anybody. Also, I had that boyfriend. I still had that same boyfriend from the seventh oh, grade. Can you believe that? However, you know, there were the occasions where somebody, hey, baby, and whatever, and come on to me and, you know, be like, haha, thanks a lot, you know, I'm flattered. No. And um, 
some people would uh, just assume because I wasn't dying to sleep with them that I must be gay. Oh, my God. So they would call me the dyke. Oh, no. Come I on. got the, so the nickname. Yeah, well, and my friend Barbara, she was um, a small girl, but rather well endowed. Mm. And um, so some of the band members said, because we wouldn't be sleeping with anybody, but they would call her, we were boobs in the dyke. Good God. That's what they call us. And, uh, and it would be like, but um, I've got a boyfriend, you know. But they just immediately, how could I possibly resist them? There could only be one reason, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't in, obviously into men because they were irresistible where, in fact, it wouldn't have mattered. That is so Trumpish. <laughs> Isn't it? Well, it's a rock and old rock and roll, old and, and rock some and roll. people who just you know don't you know who I think I am? Well, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're that. Yeah. Um, I'm here to work. I'm mm. you know I'm working on your session, and thanks a lot. And the I was fortunate to work with the quality of individuals that um, again they they needed me. To be a good assistant engineer. Yes, exactly. To, so I, would, I could make the engineer shine. I could make the producer shine. And um, because everything was, was running smoothly, that's what they really needed. needed and yes, so, exactly. uh, and I did that. And uh, the other girls did too. Oh, and, okay. But, you know, again, I dress very conservatively. I still do. I mean, you know, am I flashy right now? No, not. Not, not so no. much. Yeah. Um, and, um, what did you say? Are you flashing me? I'm <laughs> flashing. <laughs> I'm not doing that either. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, I want... It's it's about the situation and... Um, but it's sheer professionalism, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, it is. It's, um, it's you dress for the um, way you want to be um, uh, dealt with. Yes. So, um, so that's what I would do. Uh, before we move on, I, I know you have a really good Fleetwood Mac story. Well, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun when um, Fleetwood Mac um, decided to build Studio D at the Village so they could record their record Tusk. So they partnered with the Village, built this fantastic studio, and um, then went into making their record Tusk and then doing other productions as well. Um, so it was a long process, and all the assistants at the village got to take turns spelling each other being the assistant on test because it just went on and on and on, and it was it was difficult and all of that. But um, there would be the fun times where, um, on one occasion, uh, or more than once, Ken Kelly, the engineer producer, would uh, have me go out there to... Um, hit mixed drums um, so he could get drum sounds, make sure everything's working right for that iconic drum sound. And here I'm only 5'5", five five and Mick's got this big old, you know, 26-inch kick drum, and all these drums are really high and all. And so I'm... Oh, he's, yes, he's, he's a very, <laughs> very tall man. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> he's 6'6", six, six at least. And um, so I'd be out there in the studio just putting everything I had into trying to get that kick drum solid and consistent so um, 
so Kim could, you know, get the EQ and adjustments of whatever he wanted to do. And it was just like killing me because <laughs> I, I wasn't that big and I wasn't that strong. And I'd say, Ken, are you done yet? Are you almost there? I, I can only do this so long. Anybody my size, not just boy or girl. And that was the other thing. You know, yeah, it's a very physical yes, job. Yes, exactly. Was, yeah. I was coming to that. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, right. I'm yeah. I'm blessed to have a you yeah. know a very strong physical constitution, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so I can haul things around, and I do. And you had to. I could carry four reels of two inch tape at a time. Well, that's heavy. Yes, that is very heavy. Yes, yeah. I got to where I could do that, and yeah. um, uh, and and that was actually necessary. Again. Um, it's not um, male or female. It's uh, you have to be, you have to be physical. Yeah, and that has to be okay. You crawl around on the floor. I'm going to say you're wending your way through yeah, all the equipment, all the cables you, everywhere. Yeah, and yeah. microphones yeah. and and yeah. moving amps and mm. you know uh, reels of tape. Back then, not so much now. No, but true. I still do when I can. Yes. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, that was part of it too. Yeah, getting paid to work out. That's <laughs> yes, right. Looking, looking great. Yes, Blondie. Let's talk about Blondie. Oh yes. Well, um, so uh, after my three years at the Village, um, working on a whole variety of wonderful records, um, there was an opportunity for me to work for the hit producer at the time, and for for a while, uh, Mike Chapman. Oh, the great um, Mike Chapman. Yes, yeah. who was uh, responsible for My Sharona, The Knack in mm. England. He did uh, Sweet and Mud, Ballroom Blitz, mm. um, Little Willie, all these in England. Well, he'd come to America and um, was living here, had for a while, I guess. And um, anyway, I got an offer to be his engineer. And um, he had this idea that he wanted to make me the first hit woman producer and I was all for it and um, he's kind of a crazy guy everybody knows that but brilliant producer and I learned so much from him Um, very different style he was uh, he and his partner Nikki Chin would write these songs and quite often they would create bands to support the songs or um, he was a pop producer Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so I learned just the mechanics and and you know breaking it down. We're today we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, and boom, 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 boom. Much faster than a lot of people. So it was a wonderful uh, learning experience. And um, he had a record label called Dreamland Records. They had like eight artists signed to that. And but before that, I worked uh, with him on uh, several. Projects. The first one was Tanya Tucker. Oh, t- um, yes. yes. Tear me apart if you want to win my heart. <laughs> yes. I engineered that record. Oh, did you? Her, her, a lot of people wanted to do rock songs and they rock records, and so they wanted Mike Chapman to produce them. So he produced that, and then I worked on Cher's uh, um, rock record. Oh, Black with, Rose. Uh, Black Rose. Oh, the their one Black I Rose on. band. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Mike and um, uh, Bernie Toppin wrote. Uh, a song for her, at least one on that yeah. for her. So we recorded that. Julie, Julie, why do you haunt me? Yeah. Um, anyway, that was fun. Um, when she was recording that, I was in a studio. You might have been sitting there. Uh, well, 
it was it was interesting. She had um, what I did as far as that. Can I tell a little technical mic thing? Of course. Um, because um, women vocalists, and there were a lot of women uh, in on the Dreamland Records um, roster as well. Shandy Cinnamon, um, Consenting Adults had um, uh, three female singers, Holly Penfield, um, and then eventually working with Debbie Harry and Tanya Tucker mm. before, Shara. They're, dynamically, their voices, um, typically what they're doing in the verse, and then when they get to the chorus, especially when it's a rock band, you know, there's at least 10 dB difference. Mm -hmm. And so what I would learn to do was, uh, because some of them would... You know, fortunately, or hopefully they get some in the moment and you want to capture the performance and all of that. But they're not really good at mic technique when they're doing that. So you've got you to know? sneak up and snatch the mic away. No, no. What I do, <laughs> what I do this, and this is kind of classic for everybody, in, you know, rock bands. But um, you'd give them a, a, a Sure 57, SM57 microphone, which uh, 58 they'd have on stage a lot. And so you put no, that in front of them. Yeah. But then I'd put a Neumann uh, U87 or 67 up up further away, which had more gain but could capture them because uh, – and it wouldn't distort. And I would um, use uh, – you know, I'd put a, a limiter on them. And, and one of my favorite limiters – can I talk about that? Um, that I loved to use back then was um, a DBX160, and I still love to use it. It was a very inexpensive um, little um, – limiter but you could these women you know you could hit that really hard debbie harry could hit it and you know i go down to 10 db and you wouldn't hear it you know you didn't hear it pumping you didn't uh it was just a great tool and working with mike we went really fast mm -hmm. and so um so anyway, that that was one of the things I do. I let them, you know, wail into this microphone, and yes, I'd record it, but you know, probably didn't use it so much. But um, up above, yeah. Yeah. I would have this other mic capturing the performance, and so that was my little trick. Yes, yeah, and then also you learn the song, and then you would know when the chorus comes. You mm -hmm. know, drop it. 5db and so yeah. you worked it you mixed while you recorded ah, yeah. a lot of people now in a, and i try to share this and al schmidt will say the same thing you know um mix as much as you can while you're recording so when you actually do the mix it's it pretty much mixes itself that's kind of your goal mm. um or it should be I think. Anyway, that's what You've I try to do. You've done the groundwork. It's just a bit yeah. like design, graphic design. You're actually, actually designing. Yeah. You don't you know. just set the one thing and go, okay, no, no, I'll fix sort of, it later. Yeah. You're yeah, just trying. Just your level. So when the client says, yeah, I like it, you're almost there. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so that's it. You know. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what I do. So um, about six and a half records into um, um, working with Mike on Dreamland Records, there were going to be eight in a row, and then Debbie Harry was coming later. She was on Chrysalis, the Blondie, the yes. Blondie record. I really wanted that Blondie record. Well, I was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Oh, nice. Oh. Oh. Yeah, and um, so that was kind of an issue. So this is, is this why you, went, you, you quit at this point? Is well, I... Didn't quit yet, okay. um, but fortunately, one of the artists at the um, Dreamland Records, she had had melanoma, and she had these great alternative doctors down in Mexico, so she 
connect me with them. However, I still had two and a half records to go. Oh my God. Yeah, right. And go before Blondie, um, and I was I I wanted that record so badly, and so you know made it through, made it through, and um, by the time I um, finished Auto American. Uh, which was done at United Western Studios. We'd kind of, for Mike decided to stay in uh, Los Angeles. He lived here. And before that, we would go to, we did four records up at uh, Record Plant Sausalito and mm-hmm. lived up there for about six months. Um, did some work at Air London with the Knack on oh, their George second Martin's record. Oh, studio. Yeah, yes. yeah, with the London Philharmonic. Oh, the, my God, yes. The, the Knack decided they wanted um, strings yes. on four of their songs, and they wanted oh, the, London to, the Phil- London Philharmonic yeah, to do those it. Those cats so. are really wild, too, aren't they? Yeah. I've traveled with them. Yes, yeah. I traveled to Chicago with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I did their second record, uh, But the Little Girls Understand, uh, with them. But, so we got to go to, you know, air, and I got to record the London Philharmonic. Lovely. Yeah, strings. Yeah, that yeah, was the fun. And the and Probably from one mic or something, probably. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. No. Um, oh, that was the Decca trick, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. Decca right, was yes. one mic and the London Philharmonic. Yes. Yes, um, right. The cool thing was I'd never seen it snow. Oh, no. I'm from California. Oh, that's wonderful. And this was right before Christmas, and we're up there on Oxford and Regent Street, upstairs where the studio was. Yeah. And it's like December 20th, and oh my gosh, it starts snowing. And I'd not seen it, so I said, I'm sorry, we have to stop. <laughs> is it okay? Break time. I have to go outside and just see what this is like. And So, so you're they making let me... snow angels on Regent Street, was <laughs> it? <laughs> I didn't really get to that, but it was, and it's, you know, Christmas in London on Regent Street. It was, how, it was just like a Christmas card. How Dickensian. <laughs> it was just lovely. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. Oh. Anyway, so that happened. Okay. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so um, eventually... We get to the Blondie record, and um, and it was fantastic. I got to do uh, the first song on Auto American as an orchestra, and we got to record that in Studio um, One at, um, it was back then called United Western, now it's East West. So I did orchestra um, there, and... Um, wow, that's a tough one. Yeah, that was, that was great for that, and... Um, um, fortunately, I'd worked on that at the village, so this was my first orchestra on my own as the engineer, and oh, I could, I, I had it, I had it. It was great. And then, um, um, but we've had Four World Studio Three, which was the Pet Sounds room. Oh yes, Beach Boys. Yes. Who knew? Out of all the studios in the whole wide world, that Mike would want to have it would be my cousins. Oh, Pet so, Sounds was recorded. I thought it was going. Oh, I thought it'd be in Capital. Um, it, well, they call it the Pet Sounds Room. Wow, and, and, well, must be. Yeah, yeah a lot absolutely. of the, and the Wrecking Crew. Um, you see them. They're doing. Um, if you've seen a documentary on, on God Only Knows, yes, it's in that room. Yeah. A lot of great and Mamas and Papas were done in there. Yeah. All that. So it was an iconic room mm. for me to be in, and I was honored that we. That was his room. So uh, we did the basic tracks at United. Um, you know, the drums and bass and all of that. Mm. And then we did the overdubs and mixing in Studio 3. Mm. And uh, Debbie was fantastic. Um, and all the guys were... Chris was a little wacky at the time, um, taking videos of everybody and bringing them on and off the streets and all. And oh, I was dear. like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, so that was wild. But um, 
Debbie was uh, so she's so smart and so down to earth, and she was so helpful to me um, because by then I was having a lot of problems with my stomach and not digesting food and all. And she would cook, she would make my macrobiotic food for me, veggies and brown rice and and bring that because she was macrobiotic and um, um, she just got me through that. Had you been diagnosed at this point? Yes. Yeah. So you, did know what was, you did know what was going on. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, actually, we messed. So we finished the record. And, and there were so many fun things. Um, I got to get great people in on it, like for the song, The Tide is High. See, one of the reasons Mike wanted to use me was because I had connections with all these other musicians and session musicians and all of that that he didn't have relationships with. And he did not know who would be the people to have come in on these certain songs and uh, so when it came down to have percussionists on the tide is high i got uh Emil richards ollie brown and um alex acuna all three of the finest percussionists yeah. still uh had them bring everything they had uh boobams and and um jaw bones and <laughs> everything and um uh, just had them set up in Studio 3. It was just so jammed full of percussion instruments. Tracked them, all three playing at the same time, tracked them three times. So it was like having nine percussionists oh in God, there. So like... if you listen to the tide is high, it's just a cacophony. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. It's real percussion. We had so <laughs> much fun. And Jimmy Haskell was the arranger on the, for, for the orchestra as well as for all the horn sections. So we got to do that. So it was a blast. And Debbie was just the neatest person and so we've finished the record we mixed it we mastered it and then i my doctor said quit your job or die and this is oh. and so i mastered the record and the next day drove down to mexico oh, you drove all Florida, the way. Yeah. and that was it wow that's where i went and how long were you there um well uh it took me about a year and a half to get well i came I didn't have to be down there. I just had to get the tests done oh, and all. Oh, and and, and yeah. the treatment was, it's all alternative medicine. So I was under their treatment here in in Los Angeles, fortunately. Um, but um, my uh, relationship that I was in at the time was um, uh, the, the one with the earlier boyfriend. We had parted ways. Uh, and then I had a new relationship. And um, I was fortunate enough that he could uh, I didn't have to work he was in a prominent band are you yeah. going to reveal who this well, is well I yes I guess I should you really um, should otherwise I know I'm going to get I know. phone calls yes well um, <laughs> after Breakfast in America um, finished um, I ended up um, getting together with the bass player of the band and we were together for eight years oh wow so yeah and um, so I'm very grateful to him for being I guess he kind of showed up. One of the best things was that I was able to get well yes. in, uh, during that time and get away from the music mm. business. It took me about eight years, and then he and I split up, and I came back to the business. And um, So where, um, did, where did you pick up from that point? Well, I picked up—I uh, wasn't sure what to do, and I didn't want to get back in the music business. And Carla Frederick, who had worked— uh, at the village with Fleetwood, and a lot of people during the time I was gone, because the bottom fell out of the music business, and so the money that we were making back then, it was really kind of difficult to make, and, and yes, things had changed already dramatically. And quite honestly, I knew the stress of doing that would not be 
good for my health. Um, so I didn't want to get back in the music business. However, so many people had migrated to post-production, uh, sound design, Foley, um, music, editing, whatever, dialogue, using our same audio skills but applying them to film and television and Gee, I'd already started out. And I'm going to say so you've come full yeah, circle now. Kind, yes, right. kind of, yes. yes. Uh, only it was through the audio side as opposed to the um, visuals, you know, visual yeah. side. Yeah. So this was kind of wonderful. And um, Carla was already working on um, this wonderful situation mm -hmm. that she got me in with the Disney Children's Disney Channel. And so I got to work on this kid's show called Dumbo Circus. And we would record the dialogue for two days. Uh, it was it was an uh, episodic for, for three to eight year olds, which was way over our heads. Mm -hmm. And but the cool thing was they had the best session players doing the music, and the the A team of uh, voiceover actors because it was Disney. So I got to record for two days. We do all the dialogue, and then two days do all the music and the mix on Fridays. And it was just wonderful, a great group of people and all that. So it was a great way to get back into it. And then we ended up doing, uh, getting involved with uh, Buena Vista International, which was uh, Disney's um, international department for doing what is called music and effects tracks, M&Es, meaning there's all the dialogues taken out and you rebuild uh, where you pulled out the dialogue, you put in where the music was and any sound effects or anything so it'll sound just like that uh, cartoon show, mm -hmm. whatever, except nobody's saying anything, so they can dub okay. any language on it, yeah, and they friend, can go yeah, all around it. the world. So it's a it's called a foreign M and E music and effects track. Well, we got we landed this great gig with Disney, where they wanted to take their entire Disney cartoon catalog and create foreign music and effects effects tracks from it so anywhere from steamboat willie oh my god but back to early way Mickey. yes and it's all one wow. one mono track yes so of course. you pull out any you know anything hey Minnie, or anything like that any english that goofy would do or anybody everything went it'd be like this hole so we had a composer who would fill in we'd put in optical noise and we'd put oh, in right because so, there was all opti optical and... tracks in those days wasn't it yeah yeah so, yeah. so um oh, that sounds wonderful so it was a blast so yeah. i got to work on all of those that's how i started out and and doing sound effects and foley which is organic sound effects you know footsteps mm. um anything that people do slamming doors and things. yeah yes, right. well uh, but then there's the library sounds like um what they call hard effects which are you know car crashes and and some impacts and things like that but um the rest of it was done by real people performing mm. the sound effects and so it was very much like working with an artist a singer except they're making a different kind of noise oh that's wonderful i'd love to do that it was yes. it was actually <laughs> wonderful and i did it for years on many many shows and um then i got invited to this party one day and I wasn't going to go um, because a friend of mine at Disney, she decided to become a mastering engineer and open up a mastering studio. And I said, well, you know, I should go and support her new venture. Um, Sunday night right after Thanksgiving. Ugh, who does anything on that night? But um, OK, so she's having this housewarming for her 
studio. So I'm okay. I'm gonna go. Well, get there, and it's hmm. This is a pretty nice studio, and she had been a producer on a lot of the kidney uh, kids Disney kids. Difficult um, to say. Disney, yes. Disney Kids albums. So uh, she decided to go into mastering, and she had a hip-hop partner, and they were making all these great records, and I hadn't really been in the music business. Oh, I don't know, about... This is about 10 years or so. And um, I see somebody there as soon as I walk in, and there's all these... Music people I hadn't seen in ages, and oh, Lenise, what are you oh. doing? Blah 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 blah. And this one woman sitting there who had been one of the um, uh, supervisors at at uh, Buena Vista on some of the kids shows or shows I worked on, and she said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "Well, I used to be in the music business." And she goes, "Really? Can you read a score?" <laughs> and I went, "Yes, because I learned to read a score." Remember way back I was talking about being in the Compton yes, Youth Festival course, Orchestra? Yes, yes, I learned how to read a score when I was a little kid, being in orchestra. Oh, my God. Yes, thank you, Compton, one more time. One more time. And, yeah. um, Hallelujah. And she said, can you be in Tel Aviv in three weeks? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> Why? Why not? <laughs> and she says, well, I'm not with Disney anymore. I'm with DreamWorks. And um, we need foreign dubbing supervisors and we need somebody who can uh, read a score and work with the foreign music supervisors and while you're at it you might as well do the dialogue okay sure so three weeks later you're in Tel Aviv um, yeah (laughs) and why you know I don't speak Hebrew I've never been to the Middle East anything like that, but it was a fantastic experience. And um, they used all-star talent for their songs. Elton John had written the songs for this um, animated feature called The Road to El Dorado. And it was great music, great movie. And um, so then I was in with the foreign dubbing supervisors, and they're about, I think there are about nine of us. And the thing about being a foreign dubbing supervisor, they're animated features. Uh, any family programming needs to be dubbed in all these different languages because kids can't read subtitles. Yes, of course. Yay. Yes. So they were dubbed in like 70 different languages, you know, five of them being different types of Spanish, few being, you know, French Canadian as mm. well as continental French, Brazilian Portuguese as opposed to continental mm. Portuguese. How many Chinese languages do you want? Um, So we were being sent to different places, and that was a wonderful, wonderful job. I loved being a foreign dubbing supervisor, and so anytime there was something with music, they would send me as well. So Shrek had um, I'm glad we got round to Shrek. Yeah, so when Shrek came out, I got to go to—they sent me down to Rio— for a month to work on Shrek. Oh, that must have been terrible. Oh, it was horrible. Oh, <laughs> you know. And uh, I, I fala português muito mal, me fala pouquinho. Meaning, I speak. I don't speak really well, but I speak a little bit. And back then, I spoke a lot better, and uh, Portuguese. So, um, um, I have. A, I'm fortunate to have a facility for languages. It's, they just kind of come up, and then oh if God, I don't need them I've anymore, never, they kind of go away. I've never had that language. Um, so, um, so I got to do that because it was cheaper to send one person down to Rio than 30 voiceover actors 
you know, there were 30 different actors mm. in Shrek. A lot, a lot of um, fairy tale characters, you know. Oh, I, I have a fun story about that. Oh, here that. we go. Here we go. Yeah, so we're down there. So um, I get down to Rio, and the name of the movie is Shrek. And they sit me down, and they go, well, so you're changing the name of the movie, right? And I went, <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. And it says, okay, then we have a problem. And I said, okay, and what's that? And he said, well, there's a slang word in Brazilian Portuguese that is um, for the female anatomy. Oh, dear. Here we go. That isn't very nice. And it is, uh, the word is choreca. <laughs> oh. Is this oh, going, darn. Is this going to go to uh, Portugal? Yeah, yeah. Well, and they all know that, too. And, of course, um, I said, well, it's an old fairy tale, and nope, it's it's all done. And, you know, I checked with the head office down here, and they said, no, no way. It's still Shrek. So, okay. So uh, the funny part was, though, of course— Shrek, the character Shrek is never saying his name Shrek. No. The person saying Shrek is Fiona, the yelling, she's always yelling, Shrek, Shrek. <laughs> and um, that, that was kind of hard because they it's rolled their R's and it was very hard, you know, Shrek, Shrek. And <laughs> anyway, so the, she would try really hard. So these are, there are some challenges you come across in yes. the foreign dubbing world that you'd never know. Yes. Well, in an, um, Later on, when I was working on Shrek 2, I was, uh, they sent me to Greece and um, Turkey. So I, did the, I was in Athens and Istanbul to do their versions. And in Istanbul, well, it's a Muslim country, for one thing. And the, what you do is an adaptation, not a translation. So you make it uh, appropriate for that territory. So it'll be funny, and those people will enjoy it. So you adapt the jokes and all of that. Well, um, there was one scene where the uh, the character Donkey is saying to Puss in Boots, if you've seen Shrek 2, get your litter-licking nose out of my hindsight. Mm-hmm. Well, so you have to explain to them what kitty litter is. Oh, dear. And... And they already think of. They already thought that Americans were terribly vulgar and and all of that. And and uh, so I said, well, I know this sounds really awful, but in America, um, we have these boxes with this stuff in it. Then cats go to the bathroom in the house, and and I said, I know it's. And they go, oh, we don't have that here. And I said, I know, I know, I know. I don't blame you. It's it's awful, but it's called kitty litter. <laughs> And that's what kitty litter is. That's what he's talking about. And, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm with you on this. I'm with you. But we have it. How can we adapt that to be something? So they came up with something for them. But it would be things like that. The silly stuff you wouldn't yeah, think of. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And, uh, but the thing with the, um, um, the singing, there were some background singers. And in the Western world, you can put three background singers together. They can sing three parts mm-hmm. of the background, the, the um, harmonies, and uh, you can double it, and boom, you're done. Mm-hmm. In the Muslim countries or in Arabic um, or Middle Eastern music, that you have 12 tones for one um, oh. whole tone of ours. 
So they can't sing together because they aren't going to all go on the same note. They do different things with their voice. So I had to record one at a time. time. So I'm in charge of, I'm supervising in charge of the budget. So let me see. Before, two passes with three singers or um, six individual passes. So it's suddenly, you know, the budget, you know, studio time, things like that, that Mm. it's going to take that much longer because that's what they have to do. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Now we've got to we got I've got we got to jump along. You know why? Yeah. I need you to go uh, land on uh, Naris. I mean, the Recording Academy. Oh uh, yes. What you're doing, and of course, uh, women in music. Yes. I'd like to. I'd like to go out on something around there. Certainly. Well, what I'm doing today. Well, so what this did was get me back into. I'm just. An, oh, I'm having too much fun <laughs> producing vocals and being with people. I want to do music again, and right. then Kapow. Got a phone call right the next day, believe it or not, saying, I can't produce this record. Would you like to do it? Yes. So it's a blues record. and Oh, oh back to blues again. Here we yes, go. Yes, yes. Another, another um, circle. Yes, yes another. Uh, Rich Del Grosso, wonderful blues um, mandolin player yeah. and great players on it. And I just, you know, hit the ground running again. And I'm making records on my terms with people I enjoy making music with and and I'm producing and engineering, and I get to do. Uh, I just produced a record, um, all analog, oh, to tape for, oh, no, yeah, for a group called Primal Kings. Yes, and did another wonderful record with a French artist named. I did four songs for her, Clara Bellino, and we got to use great musicians and you know real musicians playing real music. No, yes, I... and uh, experimental. Music Hers is called Unexpected, and it's uh, very diverse. It was so much fun. So I I get to do work with people I love on music that I love, um, recording it the way I want to, and we just have the best time. And independent projects, and so the music business is different now. Yeah. yeah. I've so noticed. one must be diverse. Yeah. I dabble in many areas, and it allows me to be able to still make records this way and um, the laws are changing, you know, the music business. I think uh, the world without music would be a terrible thing, and now we're going to make it happen. I'm I'm so sure that we can all make a living someday making records again. That would be lovely. Yeah, so uh, as a result of me getting back into the music business, uh, I'm also uh, on the producers and engineers wing of the uh, Recording Academy, which is NERAS. I'm a voting member for Grammys. Um, I'm in Women in Music, which is uh, an organization that's national. That We used to have LA Women in Music, and I was on the board of directors of that, and that got absorbed into Women in Music, and it's a great uh, resource and support and brings recognition uh, to women in the industry. I'm in, uh, I also do archiving. Uh, I'm a member of Sound Girls. I'll be doing a workshop for Sound Girls. I just got asked two days ago by Carrie Kyes, who's the founder. She's the front of house. Um, she, She has been mixing with um, Pearl Jam for over 25 years, and she started this great organization, Sound Girls. So um, I'm a part of that. We'll be doing a recording to tape workshop in to November. Tape. Yes, <laughs> multi track nice. tape. Yes. Oh, lovely. The big Ampex thing <laughs> yeah, running there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Lovely. Yes. And um, which is which is fun for me. I I love recording to tape it. I love the sound of it. It's where I started. So yes, it's I know. and a lot of people want to do it and don't know the first thing about it. And I'd have to when I've been recording to tape, I'd have to train an assistant to help me and then then they were happy with it, but before that, they were just terrified. Mm. You know, here's a razor blade. We're, we're well, going to yes, edit. I remember, yeah. yeah, someone like Richard Perry with that diagonal slice. You yeah, know. sure. Uh, you know, it's uh, totally destructive recording. <laughs> yes. Totally. It's all and um, yeah, uh, so you have to commit. You yes. Yeah, you're doing you, that. And yeah. So if, anyway, teaching that, uh, I was an instructor at um, SAE. Uh, School of Audio Engineering mm. for about five years and teaching music production and studio protocols and procedures as well as production sound, post-production sound design and Foley. So I still do workshops. I consult with So it sounds people. to me like you're having a wonderful time. I'm having a blast. <laughs> I'm just spinning so many plates. That I'm, my whole thing is yes. keeping on top of it. I'm, I got to record something here recently um, Worldwide Musicians United is a nonprofit that I'm on the board of directors of now. Okay. Um, we did an, an interview here just a couple of weeks ago. By when here, I, saw we, you. I have to t- I have to tell the folks who are listening yes. we're in Aftermaster Studios, yes, which is you know, absolutely. Abbey Road on steroids, as far as it's I'm concerned. It's wonderful, yes. wonderful <laughs> studio, and I got to record. Um, for um, Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday about a year or so ago, after Aftermaster just opened, and right. they were lovely to support us on this. It was um, with I got to record the vocals for a song by Lucky Dubay with the um, tracks coming from South Africa and the Soweto Symphonic Choir. Oh my God! They sent from South Africa. Wooter Kellerman was the artist and asked me if I would produce the vocal with. Uh, a wonderful reggae world music artist uh, from Ghana, Rocky Dawuni. Mm-hmm. So we got to do that here wow. called Different Colors, One People, and it's huge. And it was for Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday, and it was a project. Wonderful. It's wonderful. So wonderful. I get it, it's uh, I get to do work on things that make life better for people in the world and international things and, and music with a purpose and... And who can ask for anything more? It must be so satisfying. It it is. It is. Thank you. And, oh, yeah. And and being a woman in the industry is. Um, it's. I like to inspire. Before I used to think um, I didn't want to be diverse like that, like um, because it it seemed divisive to me to say women in music as opposed to men in music. Yes, to I me, it's a genderless um, area to be in. We're we're who we are, we just happen to be uh, into I, music, but male or female. Can I know? at least call you a pioneer? You can call. You can definitely call me that. Thank you. I'll I take will. that. And that's the note I'm going to have to use to leave you, I'm afraid, because oh. uh, time is up. But I, thank uh, you so I have much. to thank you, Lindise, for coming and doing all this. Your stories are wonderful. Oh, uh, and my I've got, pleasure. I've got chills sometimes when you start <laughs> <laughs>
It was so good. Well, so we'll thank see you. you again because obviously you've got more stuff up your sleeve. I you? do. <laughs> I do. And um, I know that as I tell one, more comes up. So, yes, yeah. I would be delighted you if I could share more. And, anyway. and, um, and I thank you so much for having me. No, 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 no. It's, it's been a total honor. So, anyway, <laughs> this is how we sign off. Thank you, darling. I'm thank blowing you a kiss. Back at you. <laughs> Good night, folks. was the fabulous Lanise Bent, one of the illustrious recording engineers that helped create rock history. Today, you can find her everywhere in the LA music scene. She has taught at the Society Audio Engineers. She's active in the Women in Music and Sound Girls organizations. She's also very active and passionate about the audio restoration and preservation movement. You should be as well. If you want to catch some of Lanise's current work, in July, Pop jazz Euro artist Clara Bellino dropped her fifth album, which Lanise is credited as engineer and producer. And the debut album of Primal Kings, which, incidentally, has been produced as an analogue affair and is being worked on now. OK, a quick plug before I go. I'm online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at koshart. That's me, I'm Kosh, and this has been... Art of Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you next time. Cheers. Diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation.
Art of Rock is written by Tosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.